Kia ora e te whānau, no mai, hai to mai, good evening and welcome to Q&A. I'm Jack Tain. Tonight, is Ihu Mātau the start of a new Māori movement? One of its leaders, Pānia Newton, answers some big questions on the role of women in the modern Māori world and her own political future. We're in a crisis now more than ever before and it's disappointing to see that we're in this position considering we have so many Māori MPs in government. Then is it time for a rethink on gene technology? We've got an exclusive first look at a report from the Royal Society, Te Aparangi, which says it's time to give genetic editing technology a chance. Plus, a rare one-on-one with Reserve Bank Governor Adrian Orr. His warning for savers? So uh, it's time to have proper conversations and not be sold duds around high-risk investments that aren't justified by the returns. But we begin tonight with Ihu Mātau. The land dispute near Auckland Airport shows no signs of being resolved, with police, protesters or kaitiaki caretakers spending a wet and wild weekend on the ground. The dispute itself is complex and the detail has been well documented already, but we want to go beyond that. Because it's clear that for many people, Ihu Mātau has come to represent something greater. I spent the day at Ihu Mātau with protest leader Pania Newton, to ask, is this the genesis of a new Māori movement? The wind is blowing hard at Ihu Mātau. The mud is running deep. What happened to your tent? Oh, it got flooded out in the first three, three days. But a month into the mass occupation, the de facto leader of this protest is as determined as ever to weather the storm. The land was confiscated and so it should be returned. So the way I see it resolving itself is that the government purchase the land back, return it back to the haukainga and the marae um, and allow them to make decisions for the future of that land. That's what you want, but is that a realistic expectation of how this will conclude? Yes, I think it's realistic in the sense government can do what it, as it pleases. If the government can change gun laws overnight, they can reverse a law that designated Ihumato a special housing area. Last week, Shane Jones came on our show and he said, absolutely not. This is a Tainui issue and under no circumstances will central government be cutting a cheque for this land. Well, I would respectfully say that he's wrong. And this is not a Tainui issue, this is a Crown issue. The Crown stole the land, so the Crown should return it. Is there any space for compromise on your side? For Alfano and Amurai, at this stage, there is no compromise. Ihu Mātou has sacrificed so much for the greater good of Auckland and the greater good of New Zealand. Our moana was polluted, our awa was desecrated, our um, urupa were unearthed, and our maunga were quarried away. How much more must we sacrifice before enough is enough? This is the last piece that our marae has, our people have, and this is us, this is our identity. Do you ever question yourself that? Well, for me, I've always been a firm believer if your kaupapa is tika and your kaupapa is pono, you can never go wrong. And when we look to great examples of leadership, such as Tohu Kākahi and Te Whitio Rongomais and the development of the Parihaka movement and uh, great you know, Māori political giants such as Eva Rickard and Ngāni Kōmin Hinnik and Papa Joe Hawke uh, following their leadership, I don't feel you can ever go wrong. To what extent is this a a generational dispute? 
Yeah, I find it really um, disrespectful when people say that this is a generational dispute because I feel for my kaumatua and my kuia who uh, represent alongside us five generations of whānau from Almarai who are making decisions for our whenua. But here's the thing, the people on the other side call you rangatahi. We heard that from the Prime Minister herself, quite yeah. specifically calling you rangatahi. Shane Jones last week called you freedom campers. <laughs> I mean, these terms are used to imply that you're young and you don't understand the complexities of these issues. Yeah, it's really disheartening actually, especially coming from Jacinda Ardern. My cousins who formed this campaign with me are the same age as Jacinda, if not some of them are older than Jacinda. So for her and others to call us rangatahi not only disrespects us as young adults, but it also disrespects our kaumatua and kuia who have been guiding us throughout this whole process. Pania Newton is 28. She grew up speaking Reo Māori, and though she couldn't read English until she was 11, she went on to earn a law degree. There was a couple of times there where I was going to get admitted to the bar, um, but I struggled with the whole um, aspect around taking the oath of um, to uphold the New Zealand laws. Uh, it was a struggle for me because I couldn't um, fathom upholding laws that were against us. What do you think of the treaty settlement process? I think the treaty settlement process is a faulty one. The Waitangi Tribunal is under-resourced. It isn't doing what it was first intended to do. What do you mean by that? Um, to air the grievances of Māori and to settle the injustice and the wrongdoings of the Crown. So how do you write those injustices? And I'm talking about a broader context than just Ihu Mātau. How, how does the Crown come in and do right by Māori? Well, the Crown needs to uphold Te Tiriti o Waitangi. The Crown needs to treat Māori as equal partners as was written into Te Tiriti o Waitangi. I would even go as far as to say um, the government needs to entrench Te Tiriti o Waitangi and the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples within our constitutional framework. What would that mean? Like in, in a practical sense, if the Crown was making laws or government of the day was making laws, what, what would we see that is different to society today? For me it would mean um, that we would have the bicultural relationship that was intended when Te Tiriti o Waitangi was signed. It would also uh, mean that Māori would have the right to uh, self-determination. Pania Newton wants constitutional reform. She sees Ihu Mātau as a symbol of greater injustices. I think Ihu Mātau is the culminating point of all the issues that we are currently facing across our national landscape, things around climate change and climate degradation, things around uh, water rights and land rights and uh, mental health issues and issues around oranga tamariki. Um, what is happening at Ihumato is this is a fight for justice. What do you think about the Māori representation in government? Yeah, I've been really disappointed throughout this whole process to see how politics unfolds. You know, Labour was very supportive of us prior to you know, being in government. Uh, they made all sorts of promises, uh, but now that they're in government, they're nowhere to be seen. This government has the highest number of Māori MPs in our history, 
but yet we are seeing issues, um, you know, flashpoints in, across our national landscape around, you know, child theft and water rights and land rights, uh, which highlight to me that the Māori nation is in a state of emergency. We're in a crisis now more than ever before. Have you had um, any approaches from political parties? Yes, I have a number of parties. <laughs> I, I can't share um, who those parties are at this time, Why but not? Um, <laughs> I, I've had to respectfully decline. How, because how many parties a, have approached you? A number of new parties and a number of existing parties as well, but I've had to tell them that it, that is not my intention. My kaupapa is here in Ihumatao and it's here with my whānau and our, and our marae. How many parties in total? At least four. <laughs> that must be kind of flattering. Um, I don't know if it's flattering or insulting, <laughs> really, but um, yeah, it's certainly not an interest of mine to become a politician or get involved with politics anytime soon. When it comes to being an MP, never say never? Um, no, for me it, it is a never. It's a never? <laughs> it's a never. That's a curious position because many Māori see Pania Newton as a leader for her time. Should women be able to speak on marae? Um, that's a tricky one. Um, I think times have changed and looking across some of our marae and the scarceness of our Māori speakers on our paipai, in that sense I do agree, women should speak on the paipai. For me times have changed. Have you expressed that view? No, <laughs> this would be the first time. Let me ask this, if Ihu Mātou wasn't in dispute, what would Pāni and Newton be doing today? Um, if I look back five years ago, Pāni had dreams of becoming a successful lawyer and you know making my way up to be a judge and owning a Harley Davidson and riding around the country and um, you know saving money to buy my own boat but all of those materialistic goals have changed for me after this is all finished I just want to retire live in a tiny house and support similar movements and live sustainably um, in a way that I can support the Maori movement and the indigenous movement you've like referenced movements such as Parihaka, people such as Papa Joe Hawke. You've referenced some of the great influences and changes in Māori history. You don't see, see yourself as fitting in that kind of group? No, not at all. I just see myself as doing my contribution uh, to this kaupapa. For me, I'm just trying to be the best kaitiaki that I can be. I'm trying to be the best tūpuna that I can be, and that's what I was taught by my elders. Um, and I, and I recognise too that I stand on the shoulders of political giants such as Papa Joe and Eva Rickard and Aniko Minhinik and Fina Cooper, but I don't do in no way see myself as one of them. I just see myself as somebody who is trying to continue the legacies that they left behind for us to contribute to a better Aotearoa. That's Pani and Newton. With much more for you coming up, Reserve Bank Governor Adrian Orr tells us he's worried for older people's savings. And will ratepayers have to cough up for the government's tough new water rules? Plus, a little later... We have some amazing young leaders who are saying, 
We're not going to wait around for people to invite us to the table. We're not going to wait around for permission to be at that table. Some of the young candidates stepping up for this year's council elections. Our young leaders from all over the world are providing inspiration. No mai hoki mai. Fonterra today announced a loss of up to $675 million for the financial year just ended, which means no dividend for its farmer shareholders. It's not great news for our rural communities or indeed for the rest of the economy, given growth has been slowing. But this is the backdrop for the Reserve Bank's latest OCR call, where interest rates were slashed by half a percentage point in hopes of stimulating the economy. The cut is good news for borrowers, and the banks moved quickly to cut mortgage rates. But when I spoke to Reserve Bank Governor Adrian Orr, I asked, is he happy with the bank's response? Too early to tell. Um, you know, there was some immediate reaction from the banks uh, dropping interest rates. But, you know, we are watching very closely. Um, the pass-through over recent years has been what we anticipated, the pass-through mm. from, the, from the official cash rate into um, deposit and lending rates. Um, but we're letting that work its way through. There has been a structural change, just, just briefly, because banks are also now... Uh, delightfully more dependent on deposits as well than, rather than just wholesale borrowing. So, so the banks are working their way through about, about how, you know, um, adjusting interest rates both to their deposit base as well as their lending base. And so we're seeing that working through the system. But would you like to see more generous rates when it comes to lending? I, I want to see a, a, a significant pass-through of the lower interest rate into, into the real economy. I mean, we, we cut interest rates to mm. encourage investment, um, encourage more active investment, uh, to encourage spending. And so the, one of the main mechanisms is both through the banking system, the cost of borrowing, but also the hurdle rate to investing. Mm. You know, it's very hard to be nervous about investing at this point with such a low hurdle rate to investment. Is there a risk that households take on too much debt? Uh, that's always a risk, but, um, you know, we've seen a significant improvement uh, over mm. recent years. And we need to also separate out what I would call an average debt position versus some extreme household positions. The central bank has been worried about that extreme position for, for quite a long time. Yeah. Lending standards were too lax. They have improved, but on average, um, interest rates are getting better. Similar in the agricultural sector, I know that um, there's been a lot of concern there around, um, around what the bank's behaviours will be in the agricultural sector. We have to remember that they were aggressively lending for a good part of 10 years, and now they're reconsidering whether that was sensible or not. Um, they need to be sensible around their long-term behaviour. So not all, but some are heavily indebted? Uh, in the agriculture sector, it's interesting that around 80% of the debt is held by only about 10 to 15% of the people. And so there are some heavily indebted mm. segments to the agricultural sector. In the household sector, we hold a lot of debt, but it's, uh, it's uh, a lower cost of interest means it's easier to service. And also uh, we are able to uh, either have free cash flow by lower interest rates and or you could leverage further. So that's really an individual household decision. It's the businesses that need to get going on investment and it's the government that needs to keep going on its planned expenditure. Yeah, let's talk, talk about the government for a moment. I mean, this government, as we know, has been determined to return surpluses and to contain debt to 20% of GDP. Is it time for this government to start spending more? 
Uh, the government is spending more. And so this is the first time in our projections that we've taken on the new budget expectations that we saw announced only a, a couple of months back. In our projections ahead, government spending is a significant component of, uh, of the boost to demand. So mm. we see economic activity picking up over the next two years, in part because of the low interest rates and also in part because of the government spending. And so our challenge is that that spending actually gets done because there are lags and delays and challenges mm. around infrastructure spend. Um, you can more immediately do the consumption spending and the welfare um, transfer payments. So, so we are confident that the expectation is to spend. Uh, we will be watching closely to see whether the impulse is coming through. But see, we're getting two different messages at the moment. The Reserve Bank is saying now is the time to borrow, now is the time to spend. The government's saying we're going to have to wait until at least next year's budget before those budget responsibility rules are relaxed and they can inject more into the economy. Yeah, it, it is really interesting. I mean, how times have changed. Uh, I was at, at the Parliament yesterday in front of the Select Committee and we had what would traditionally be the Conservative end of Parliament suggesting more and more government spending and more borrowing and higher wages and, and what would be considered the Liberal side saying, no, we need to be fiscally responsible. I think New Zealand's debate and discussion around fiscal responsibility got too narrowly defined by a debt target. It was there for a purpose originally around creating some structural discipline. But there is nothing magic about net debt of 20%. You need to be flexible, low and stable debt to be used sensibly um, when needed uh, and to be used sensibly uh, on, on infrastructure and assets mm. that are needed. And so flexibility with confidence is, is what we're after. Well, well these are self-imposed rules, as we know, but there is a little caveat. There's an asterisk at the bottom of those rules that says... If this government is faced with trying economic circumstances, they can effectively change those rules and start Absolutely. spending. Would you like to see that happen now? Uh, I'm comfortable... Um I, I am absolutely comfortable that uh, this government and any other government would act sensibly that they know that there's no uh, electric fence at 20% of GDP. Um, the government has talked openly um, about um, uh, being more flexible um, around those targets They've in the talked, future. but they're not spending yet. I think a, a significant challenge for them, from what I understand, is that they got elected on this particular promise because the nervousness of the public always was that, oh, governments will get in there, they've got surpluses, they'll go crazy and spend. Um, so, you know, this was a simple signal of their desire for long-term discipline. Uh, mm. But around that, you need the flexibility. Um, they have promised and they are spending. Um, you know, I'm not here representing fiscal policy, I'm just saying, given the numbers that have turned up, it is a significant fiscal spend ahead um, that they're promised, and Treasury themselves have been mm. operationally sceptical to say, even with this much promised, can we deploy that capital over that period? You know, deploying it is a, is a significant challenge. Yeah, we, we know there are capacity issues, but in an ideal world, would you like to see the government bring forward that spending and start spending now? We really need to see the government spending. Um, uh, I'm not sure how they would bring forward outside of uh, immediate, um, I suppose, uh, airdropping cash. You know, their intention is to spend. I do believe it is a fantastic time to be thinking about long-term investment. Uh, that's both government and private sector. 
And I'd love to see uh, more private sector money going into the infrastructure spend itself. It doesn't always just have to be government money. So uh, around the world, there is an infrastructure deficit. There is mm. a global surplus of cash. There are very low interest rates globally. This is a generational opportunity to, to be building long-term sustainable infrastructure. Looking forward, how likely is a recession? Uh, I don't think it's 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 not in our central forecasts. Um, I would put it at, at a uh, at the you know it's within any confidence interval, but I'd put it at a low barrier. I mean, our, our projections are that economic growth will be picking up, um, real growth activity. We we are confronted with challenges, but they're quality mm. challenges. Where do we get the supply? How do we get the investment in place? Where do we find the labour? Um, so you know these are these are fantastic challenges for the country, mm. but it is around a world of low nominal interest rates. So people have to get in their minds the difference between low global nominal interest rates and and real economic activity. Economic activity is still strong. Are you concerned about the? Um, we're just seeing more of these ads for the finance companies coming up. You know, the, the yeah, old, yeah. oh, you know, 8%, <laughs> that sort of thing. Well, that's, that's why we're working very closely with the, uh, the FMA, uh, the Commerce Commission. Um, you know, we've, we've really reinvigorated what's called the Council of Financial Regulators because the answer is yes. You know, we don't want disintermediation going into bucket shop lenders. Uh, some of these truck lending has just been, you know, the, um, the uh, payday lending and stuff. It's, it's, it's not nice. And we're also talking with the New Zealand Bankers Association because often it's their balance sheet behind mm. that lending. I suppose though, that there'll be, there'll be baby boomers, for example, who say, well, a turn deposit's not going to return me anything with the OCR where it's at and, and interest rates where they're at at the moment, so maybe I should be pouring money into these companies. Uh, well, that's right. They, they need to be thinking about what are alternative investments. We, you know, in our minds, it's what I was talking about this morning, people get savings... Can, as if it's something different to investment. You know, saving is investment. If you're saving with cash under the pillow, well, you're losing in real terms. If you've mm. got it in a, in a low nominal bank account, well, you, you might break even on inflation. Uh, saving needs to be thinking about what are the investments I need to be making? How do mm. I put my capital to work? Mm. Um, so so uh, it's time to have proper conversations and not be sold duds around high-risk investments that aren't justified by the returns. So all of this talk about us having learnt and being responsible as financial advisors, time to step up. That is Reserve Bank Governor Adrian Orr. Let's see what Jenny has planned for us on tonight. Tonight. Thanks, Jack. Well, it's probably best to stay indoors tonight. Severe weather pummels much of the North Island. How long will it last? The forecast not good for Fonterra either. The dairy giant signalled a massive loss. Why, the milk's gone sour. An Aussie tradies' response after his violent rampage in Bali is all caught on camera. Plus, the return of a Kiwi favourite that had been damaged by a storm. The first look at the stunning Hooker Valley track. Join us for all that and tomorrow's weather at 10.25 and that walk really is stunning. Take your word for it, Jenny. I haven't got outside in a long time. <clears throat> Not in this weather. Hey, send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can email us as well, Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. Don't forget, we've got the Q&A podcast up and running as well. You can subscribe to that wherever you get your podcasts. Up shortly, get ready. Tough new water standards are on the way, but how much will it cost councils to upgrade? And will ratepayers be swamped with higher bills? But next on Q&A, gene technology. It's an emotive issue here, but some of our top scientists say Kiwis should look again at the benefits it could bring.
we're in a world where actually we're going to have to make some trade-offs between uh, what is the we're keeping a clean green image and having technology which allows us to actually walk that walk and mitigate environmental damage. Tēnā koutou, welcome back to Q&A, where we have some breaking news for you. Our top scientists are tonight calling for a rethink on the contentious issue of gene technology. In a new report released to Q&A, the Royal Society Te Aparangi says new genetic technologies offer much more precision than in the past and should be reconsidered as a tool for areas such as conservation, healthcare and agriculture. The Society recommends a legal framework that would essentially allow for more gene editing in New Zealand. I went through the report with Professor Peter Dearden from Otago University and asked him to explain exactly how gene editing works. The cool thing is it's a really simple technology. All you're doing is cutting uh, a piece of DNA. So in each of your cells there's a, there's a length of DNA. Gene editing allows us to take, point to a place and cut it and open it up. And once a piece of DNA is opened up, um, we can do all kinds of things. So we can shove it back together again, which often causes damage and, and um, allows us to turn a gene off, for example. We can change the sequence mm. of the base pairs at where we've cut them, or we can even insert something into that, into that hole. All right. Can you just give us an overview then of what the Royal Society Te Aparangi has been considering? So the, the Royal Society has had a team of people from all around the country looking at the consequences of gene editing uh, in New Zealand. So we've had a look at what the consequences for gene editing might be in healthcare, what uh, it could be used for in, in um, sort of environmental conservation pest uh, management, and also in um, the, the sort of um, primary production area. Uh, along the way, we've discovered all kinds of really interesting things, and one of the most perhaps important things is just how confused the, uh, the legislation around gene editing uh, is in New Zealand. Because is gene editing permitted at the moment in New Zealand context? So certainly you can do gene editing in labs, so in containment, and, and indeed I have. I've edited uh, a fruit fly, if you'd like to know, um, in, in a lab, uh, but that's all in containment for research purposes. Um, we haven't been in the position where gene editing has been uh, released into the environment. It is possible to do that, but the road to do that in New Zealand is very long, very hard and very expensive. So I don't believe that there are any applications at the moment to do that. So what does the Royal Society want to see? So one of the key things that we've been looking at is the fact that gene editing really is an extension of technologies we've been using for years. So all of those plants, for example, of the Green Revolution, mm. which so revolutionised agriculture, they were all developed by mutagenesis. And in mutagenesis, what we do is we take an organism and we bombard it with um, particles, X-rays, for example, which causes mutations. So they have lots of mutations in their genome, mm. and then we select the ones that we want. Gene editing allows us to say, we know what we want, let's make just that particular but it, change. Is it that precise, though? Can you really be that precise? So it's a lot more precise. Than, than treating with, with mutagens or, or right. with x-rays. Um, and because we also have new developments in genome sequencing, we can probably find all the places where changes have been had and, and work with that, work out whether we need to keep them, whether they're a problem or cross them out. So, so it's precise, far more precise than it has been. It's not necessarily 100%. So, so what are some of the, the risks that you have identified? And considering the different case studies across those different sectors, whether it's healthcare, whether it's the primary industries, what are some of the things that can still go wrong? So I think in, um, the, in primary production, for example, there is probably little that can go wrong because you're talking about product development. So the gene editing event may occur you know, tens of years before a product comes to market and during that 
time it's being tested and it's being assessed for all kinds of characteristics, mm. which is exactly the same as you would do for a, a new um, seed produced by mutagenesis. Mm. In pest control, there are these ideas about gene drives, which are a little more complicated because um, while we can test them in containment, you've still got this moment where you're releasing a gene drive and, and you may not ever be able to get it back. Sounds pretty risky. Well, you have to weigh those risks with benefits. Mm. So, for example, you know, um, one a great target, I think, for gene drives would be the common and German wasps. Now, common and German wasps aren't just annoying things which eat your sandwiches at school. Mm. They also cause immense damage, particularly in a, a beach forest in the South Island. So they're, they're destroying our environment. We need to look at the benefits of removing those versus the risks of releasing a gene drive. What a legal body would essentially allow, though, is in the field trials and development of uh, products that are gene edited in New Zealand. One of the things you didn't consider was the impact on product values. A at the moment, obviously, New Zealand exports can go to market and we can, we can play on the clean and green image. We can say our products are free of genetically edited um, ingredients. That wouldn't be the case. What, what sort of damage would that do to our overall brand value? It's hard to know, and I think that's something that needs to be looked into carefully. Um, but I think we're in a world where actually we're going to have to make some trade-offs between uh, what is the keeping a clean green image and having technology which allows us to actually walk that walk and mitigate environmental damage. So if we're actually developing uh, genetically modified organisms which may improve um, the uh, uh, carbon dioxide release, for example, or may mm. improve the quality of our waterways, should we not look at those as a way to mitigate the environmental effects of, of the current farming practices we have? I mean, let's be honest, though. If you make a legal framework, this is going to happen. The moment you allow for a legal framework, something's going to be allowed. Well, I think actually the bigger problem is that internationally this is going to happen, and we've seen this in healthcare with, mm. the, with the Chinese uh, children born gene-edited to protect them from HIV. Now, that experiment was illegal and unethical and immoral, but um, we are seeing other countries developing uh, these technologies and frameworks which are less... Um, precise than ours, and those will be imported into New Zealand. And it's actually quite difficult to detect when something has been gene-edited in this way because of its precise nature compared to something which is genetically modified. Is there p the potential, do you think, for gene-edited technologies to fix our climate change problem? I think that's a difficult ask, but I think they can certainly be part of the solution. Um, I, I think there are plenty of areas where actually increasing the efficiency of our farming is going to be vital for our farming industry to remain mm. competitive in the future. Um, I think the same with, with pest control. We can't go uh, on just spreading toxins throughout the landscape. Maybe in, in certain places and in certain ways a genetic approach might be a better one. So I think we have to look at the risks and the benefits of these different approaches, and that's the critical thing that we can't really do at the moment. We need to know what those benefits are and really allow them to, to, to be matched against what the risks might what be. What you're saying is everything, every gene-edited product, for want of a better term, should be considered on its merits. That, that's exactly right. And I think the same applies to, to many other technologies mm. in biology as well. There is so much attention on the ryegrass that is being produced by ag research at the moment that um, is, is developed in New Zealand labs, then has to be taken overseas for legal reasons to be tested in the field. What we know at this stage is that uh, early tests show that it significantly uh, reduces methane production and uh, nitrogen production in cattle. It's more drought resistant as well. Is that the sort of product that if allowed to be developed in New Zealand could substantially lower our 
carbon footprint. I think that's that's true. I think in that particular case, the research is still going on, and we we need to know the results mm. of that. But again, it's about measuring those risks and benefits, and looking and saying, actually, do we want to mm. to develop an agriculture which is smart and uses modern biology to mitigate the effects uh, on our on our environment, or do we not? And I think that, that that's what the Royal Society is really asking to do, is open the box and start mm. saying, how can we use these kinds of technologies in a way that is consistent with New Zealand's values? Can politicians have a responsible debate about this subject? I'd like to think so. I, I, I think that the, the most challenging aspects of this are in uh, conservation or looking after uh, endangered species. You know, I think if we could find ways to, for example, use genetic modification mm. to deal with issues like myrtle rust and, and cowrie dieback, then it, we would be foolish not to use them to protect our, our native treasures. So I think that, that actually we need to move into that space. I think in the past a lot of genetic modification has been presented in terms of international agriculture companies making money. This should be about us and about things that we need to do. It's a hugely emotive subject though. Do you think scientists should have more of a say when it, com when it comes to policy around this? I think um, uh, I'd like to see more of my scientists colleagues talking uh, in the media and, and expressing their opinions and showing where the risks and benefits actually are. But this is a decision that needs to include all New Zealanders. And particularly, you know, the, the, the solutions we're going to find for New Zealand are unique ones, and therefore that has to include all of our communities. Professor Peter Deden from the Royal Society Te Aparangi and the Minister for the Environment, David Parker, has just put out a statement in response saying he'll be asking officials to consider the hurdles to gene technology and will consider the report's recommendations. Up next on Q&A, there's nothing like the taste of pure, pristine water, but tough new rules could see chlorination become much more common in our drinking supply. The problem with uh, chlorination is that it's very much the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. It's a complete failure on the part of government to actually address the, the true issue. Hi to my, welcome back. A tsunami of cost is how local government New Zealand described the government's new water reforms. New plans to clean up waste, storm and drinking water have been released, part of the government's response to the contamination of Havelock North's water that left thousands of people sick. But councils are worried about the cost of the upgrade and how it'll affect what residents will be drinking. In Ōtautahi Christchurch, the council is gearing up for a fight against permanent chlorination, as Fina Owen reports. There must be something in the water. It's still got chlorine in it, but we don't want it there. We hate it. We filter all our water. Uh, can't stand, you know, the shower's pretty nasty. Chlorine has been a nightmare for many in this water-proud region. Last year, the city was forced to chlorinate its water after it found some wellheads were insecure. From this Wollstone warehouse, Sue Kelly sells water filters. She's been selling filters for 30 years, but 2018 was a bumper year. Did you have a lot of inquiries yes, last year? Yes, we did. We did. It was madness for a couple of weeks. It was just everybody was so offended that they were putting chlorine in the Christchurch water. By now, Christchurch residents had expected their water to be chlorine-free, especially since the council has now upgraded its wellheads. But the three waters regulations will impose tougher standards. Mayor Leanne Dalzell says she welcomes the new regulations and a clause that allows for councils to apply for exemptions. We're focused on 
getting an exemption from the requirement to chlorinate when it comes in. It is Three Waters, the government's overhaul of drinking water, storm and wastewater management and a water regulator due to be set up late next year. In the meantime, has Christchurch accepted that chlorinated water is the new normal? It's not as noticeable as it used to be. So how long do you think you're going to have to have chlorine in your water? Oh, I can't see a future without it. Neither can Water New Zealand. With a membership of 2,000 companies and organisations, it's lobbied the government hard on three waters and thinks Christchurch will have to get used to a future with chlorine. We would argue that an ongoing treatment regime is essential. Um, that's a view that's not supported by the Christchurch City Council. The chlorine business is big business. It would cost us um, millions of dollars to implement it and it would cost us over a million dollars a year in operational expenditure. If you were asked to if, permanently... If we, were, if we were required to permanently chlorinate our water, it would be an enormous cost. There are a lot of vested interests who are providing advice at the highest level, and uh, that worries me because their vested interests aren't exposed. Christchurch lawyer Peter Richardson is the spokesperson for Aotearoa Water Action. The problem with uh, chlorination is that it's very much the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. It's a complete failure on the part of government to actually address the, the true issue. Um, they, they seek to ignore the fact that the threats to our drinking water supply are caused by agricultural intensification and particularly the threat from nitrate pollution. Sue Kelly agrees that nitrate is looming large in our future and not being addressed. But you're selling nitrate filters. I know. So it's in your favour to say that, isn't it? Uh, possibly, but it, it still doesn't make it right. All the councils are strapped for cash. They haven't created the problem. It's the intensive dairying. And yet they will probably be looked at to resolve the problem. So what will councils have to pay? Government projections estimate that under three waters, the nationwide capital cost of upgrading wastewater systems to be between three and four billion dollars, and the cost of upgrading drinking water networks between three and 570 million. How do you raise that sort of money? Water New Zealand says making metering of water mandatory across the country could be a start. Then you would have a much more focused amount of money available to councils to spend on that service. So you'd ring fence it, you'd collect money from uh, water use uh, and consumption and you'd actually spend that money on the same service. But if it means that the water becomes contaminated, better to be chlorinated than sick. Christchurch's mayor doesn't agree. Read the Havelock North report, she says. Many, many, many examples of where chlorinated water still poisoned the people who were on the receiving end of the, of the tap. And that, to me, says that chlorine cannot be the answer, and it certainly isn't the answer in Christchurch. Fina Owen with that report. We'll have your feedback after the break. Plus... Hi, I'm Bonnie Mager. And I'm running the Southland Environment Council. The young candidates aiming for the top in this year's local body elections. That's next.
Thanks for your feedback this evening. On the interview with Pani and Newton, Karaitiana Tauru tweeted, I know my children and mokopuna will know her as a leader of today, as I think of so many other humble leaders with her characteristics. Lindy Kerr tweeted, The outcome of the interview suggests that young Māori think nothing has changed and there's been no progress since the treaty was actually signed all those years ago. On our interview with the Reserve Bank Governor, Smartmouth tweeted, Thanks, Adrian Orr, you just slashed the income for thousands of retirees. Why bother saving? And on gene technology, Grant Farquhar tweeted, About time we will get left behind if we don't get our A's into G. Thanks for that. The deadline for nominations in this year's council elections is Friday, but already there appears to have been a surge of young candidates. How will this new generation change politics in New Zealand? We sent Fina Owen around the country to meet some of the candidates. Hi, I'm Bonnie Mager. Kia ora, my name's Joshua Trillin, and I'm running for the Northern Ward of Porirua City Council. And I'm running for Southland Environment Council. Kia ora, my name's Sophie Hanford, and I'm running for the Pakirihi Romati Ward on the Kapiti Coast District Council. And that's Sophie Hanford behind the megaphone at a strike for climate march. She was one of the national coordinators. For many of the young candidates we spoke to, running for council was a natural next step from their involvement in issues like climate action. Kia ora, my name is Rabia Anayatula and I'm running for Porirua City Council in the Northern Ward. Kia ora, my name's Victoria Rhodes-Carlin and I'm running for the Greater Wellington Regional Council. Uh, hello, my name is Chloe Swarbrick. And in 2016, Greens MP Chloe Swarbrick Ving 22 ran in the Auckland mayoralty election, coming in third. But it's not just the Chloe Swarbrick effect that may have inspired some people to stand for council. Strong young women are continuing to lead on issues here. And yes, there's Greta Thunberg. We kids shouldn't have to do this. Panya Newton and Greta Thunberg are both inspirations for me and other women such as Alessandria Ocasio-Cortez in the US. There's kind of a movement of young women across the world standing up and stepping into leadership positions. What I'm hearing uh, from young people is that they're more interested in issues than in personalities. And given the interest that young people have and their concern about climate change, um, I think this is perhaps incentivising a cohort to put their hands up and say, we need to be involved in this. It wasn't too long ago that councils all looked like this. But even now, just 6% of people elected to local government positions are under 40. Councils ought to reflect the communities they serve, so diversity in all its forms is really healthy. Kia ora, my name is Jacqueline Paul and I'm standing for Papakura this local elections. Kia ora te whanau. my name is Terry O'Neill. My name is Josh Chandler Mackay, I'm running for a second term on the Whanganui District Council. And I'm running for Te Motu Kairangi, the Eastern Ward. And in 2016, Josh Chandler Mackay was the youngest elected councillor at 19. But wait, now at 24, he has spent half his life involved in local government. As a 12-year-old, I joined our Whanganui District Council Youth Committee. So what advice does he have for young hopefuls? The difficulty with local government is that it's not just one or two meetings a month, it's an incredibly extensive role. Unless you're a business owner or someone with an incredible amount of flexibility uh, in your working life, you simply don't have the time to step away from a job um, to, to focus on council business. So often our voices at the decision-making tables are left out and 
excluded. That's why I'm standing for Papakura. I believe we need to see meaningful action taken on issues like the climate crisis, the mental health crisis and the housing crisis. I was stranded, um, I was waiting for buses that didn't appear, I was late at night alone at creepy bus stops. There's one issue which particularly motivated this Wellingtonian to run for the regional council, buses. I think Wellingtonians deserve so much better than what we've been having. Um, the lack of competency, particularly seen in the bus mess last year, was just a clear example that our leadership are not leading. We have some amazing young leaders who are saying, we're not going to wait around for people to invite us to the table. We're not going to wait around for permission to be at that table. We're going to be there ourselves. Lots of impressive, articulate young people there. Tonight is up next. That's Q&A for this week. Thanks for watching. And Namihia Nokia Koto Inga Karede. That means thanks for your messages. Thanks to the Q&A team. Hey, Atira Wiki. We'll see you next Monday evening at 9:30. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand on here.